All right, you should be in Isaiah 40. Navigate on your device, your Bible, whatever you're reading. Chapter 40, verses 12 through 31. The topic we're going to discuss there this morning, our God is the awesome God. The title of the message, you've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel awestruck? Well, do you, pal? Lord, uh, we want to be awestruck. We ought to be awestruck because you are alone awesome. We uh, use that word a lot, Lord, in society and in conversation, but the truth is you are the only person, the only thing awesome, and your awesomeness is above uh, all things that we could imagine or even think. And so, Lord, we, we want to leave this place awestruck today. In Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, the Great Pyramid of Giza, the Eiffel Tower, Hoover Dam, Panama Canal, these would be on most lists of extraordinary feats of engineering. If you grab the brochure while you're touristing at any of these sites, you'll be awed by numbers and comparisons. Hoover Dam, for instance, imagine a four-foot-wide sidewalk wrapped completely around the earth at the equator. That's a lot of concrete. That's how much concrete it took to build the Hoover Dam. It's amazing when you think about it. The dam is 726 feet tall, 1,244 feet long. That's almost a quarter of a mile. At its base, the dam is a whopping 660 feet thick. That's longer than two football fields stretched end to end. At its top, Hoover Dam is 45 feet thick. That may seem thin uh, compared to its massive base, but it's still nearly as wide as a four-lane highway. It is estimated to weigh 6,600,000 tons, more than 5,500,000 cubic yards of material were excavated. Impressive. You want to talk about a few genuine marvels of engineering? The waters, the heavens, the dust, the mountains, the hills, the heavenly host. There's no building or tomb or canal or dam or tower that can compete with its setting on the earth in the universe created by God out of nothing in six days around 6,000 years ago. Every new marvel of human resourcefulness, we ought to just smile and direct our attention to our passage in Isaiah. For example, in verse 12, it says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. Weigh the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Lift up your eyes, verse 26, on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number, calls them all by name. We agree our God is awesome. Are we sufficiently awestruck? I'll organize my comments around two questions. Number one, are you awestruck at the Lord for his creation? And number two, are you awestruck with the Lord as his new creation? Verses 12 through 20, we'll look at creation a little bit. One anonymous author said, the second half of the book of Isaiah, consisting of the last 27 chapters, is the sublimest and richest portion of Old Testament revelation. The first 39 chapters focused on the crisis that was in the present, the Assyrian threat of invasion. And then chapters 40 through 66 will look 150 years or so ahead to the prophesied crisis of Babylon and the 70-year captivity in Babylon. Now, we learned in verses uh, 
11, in verse 11, rather, that the Lord comforts us by reminding of his coming for us. If you have any doubts that the Lord can comfort us while we patiently wait for him, the remainder of chapter 40 will drive them away. And so we pick it up in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? I can hardly think of anything more insignificant than dust. Yet God used it to create the first man, arguably the greatest of his creations. It ought to humble us that our progenitor, Adam, was made not from anything precious. I recall a Star Trek original episode, original series episode in which something was removing all the fluids from the crew and they would just be left as a pile of minerals on the ground. Think of yourself as the Peanuts character, Pigpen. A cloud of dust accompanies him wherever he goes. He has been cleansed on a couple of rare occasions. We're a little bit like that, maybe not outwardly, but spiritually. The Lord cleanses us once for all by the cross. He declares you righteous, you are justified. It's just as if you've never sinned. When God sees you, he sees you through Jesus and he accepts you as he accepts his son. However, as we're out in the world, we do the pig pen thing and we pick up the dust and the dirt and the grime of the things that are in the world. And I'm not talking about the physical things, although that's true too, but the moral decay and the, the philosophies of the world and all the things that assail us as Christians. And we need that daily cleansing of the word of God applied by the Holy Spirit to our life. And so, you know, people say, we talk about devotions. Think about devotions the way you think about showers, right? I mean, now, some people don't shower enough, but, you know, <laughs> let, I'm thinking about showers and people who like to be clean, all right? I, I'm only thinking that because Pam was watching something the other day, one of these crazy, you know, statistic things or shows, and there was a guy on there who's, he's in India, he hasn't taken a shower or a bath for like 50 years, and uh, it's a religious thing with him, and, and so he's very lonely, uh, but anyway, uh, yeah. <laughs> So, you know, so your devotion, so, oh, you know, devotions, one of the reasons you do that, you, you're dirty. You need to, it's for you. You got to get cleaned up by the word of God, right? Uh, it's not a religious thing. It's not a, I, I have to, you, you better want to. Otherwise, you're going to start doing some spiritual stinking, right? And, and so, uh, pig pen. What is dust? According to the nearly infallible online resource that is Wikipedia, dust is made of fine particles of solid matter. Uh, such as uh, soil lifted by the wind and volcanic eruptions and pollution. Dust in your house is composed of 50% dead skin cells. Just think about that when you're dusting. Right back in, in and out, right? The dust goes in, the dust goes out, in your stomach and out. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> God knows about each sparrow that falls. He numbers the hairs on your head. He saves your tears in his bottle, and he can tell you how much dust there is by whatever measurement you might ask. 
Our God is the creator, not the caretaker of dust, or and caretaker of dust, rather. He is not a dead idol that merely collects dust. He is God. Verse 13, who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? Do we not try to direct and teach the Lord rather than learn to be directed by the spirit? Think of the, some of the things you prayed for years ago, looking back, were you really, you know, saying in, Lord, your will be done, or you're trying to change God's mind and kind of push him in a certain direction? Am I directing him to do what I want done? Do we seek counsel from the ungodly? Thinking that, you know, what the Bible says really isn't enough, or what my church thinks, or, you know, what a spiritual counsel. I, I need real counseling from a person who's graduated from a real secular university where they're filled with godless hatred of Jesus Christ. I'm going to get my help there. Can you help me? I'm a Christian, and I can't make it in life, but you certainly can help me. You devil-worshipping scum, right? I mean, it's just... Uh, Carl Jung, the psychologist, he had conversations with a spiritual being he called Philemon. Dave Hunt used to call him Philemon the demon. And, and yet we study Jungian psychology and we go to Jungian therapists and stuff like that. Be careful. Now the architects, uh, excuse me, verse 14. With whom did he take counsel and who instructed him and uh, taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The architects and engineers who bid and built had credentials and commensurate to the projects that we mentioned. The God of the Bible is the only person who is accredited to build universes and human beings. He alone has sufficient knowledge and understanding. Now, what does justice have to do with this? Adam and Eve forfeited their rule over creation by disobeying God. God, who is infinitely holy, cannot merely overlook sin passed on to us as an inheritance and by imputation. God, therefore, devised a, a plan, a way of saving us by remaining both just and justifier of sinners, and that way is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The God-man is the only acceptable sacrifice for sin, our substitute. And if you believe that, you are saved. Verse 15, behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket. They're counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing. If you combined all the nations of all the world throughout all of human history, their power and might would be similar to a drop in the bucket of God. Now, God's bucket is pretty big. He created water, oceans, lakes, rivers, streams, aquifers. He was responsible for the morning dew and for the snowpack. And so a drop in that bucket is a drop in the bucket. Do you dust off your scale before getting on it? How much are we going to talk about dust today? It's starting to be like a Jim Gaffigan routine, you know, where he goes off on one particular topic. But, you know, if you weigh yourself, if you're brave enough to weigh yourself, I guess there might be one of us could be fanatic enough to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did you dust the scale? Because I think, you know, there's dust on the scale. Insignificant doesn't mean unimportant. Nations, cultures, geographic boundaries are going to exist in eternity. This is something I'm studying a lot more than I ever have before, but 
In the book of the Revelation, in eternity, not just the millennium, but in eternity, we read about the church as an entity, we read about Israel as a continuing entity, and we read about Gentile nations, plural, that are on the restored and recreated earth. There will be commerce and industry and culture and wonder and all kinds of things in the uh, future, uh, you know, eternity. It's not just going to be a harp brigade, you know, where we have harp lessons and sit. Uh, that'd be fine with me because I love the harp, but um, we're going to be doing something active. And it's not going to be the Garden of Eden either. You know, a lot of times we tend to think, well, we're going to get back to the garden. We'll all be naked and eat figs and, a, you know, that kind of thing. It's not going to be anything like the Garden of Eden. That was a testing ground. We're not going to go back to Eden. We're going ahead to the new Jerusalem and to the earth and to the way God intended things to be. It's going to be wonderful. Verse 16, Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its be sufficient for a burnt offering. If the famous forest and all its animal life could be brought to the Lord and offered to him, it would fall short of a sacrifice that would honor the Lord. Verse 17, all nations before him are as nothing. They are counted by him as less than nothing and worthless. Nations are nothing and worthless when compared to God. Theologians explain the comparison this way. They say, God is transcendent over and immanent in his world. These 19th century words express the thought that on the one hand, God is distinct from the world and does not need it, while on the other hand, he permeates the world in sustaining creative power, shaping and steering it in a way that keeps it on its planned course. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. This is referring to idols that would be hung from the ceiling uh, by chains. Uh, then he says in verse 20, whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. It's really comical to realize that the kind of idols he's talking about, the representative idols, you know, of stone and wood and precious materials, they are made, man-made from God-made elements, right? And so this is my idol, a craftsman made it. Isn't it wonderful? Where do you get the material? Uh, God made that. But let's not think about that right now because I've got this idol, this golden calf or whatever it is. You end up obviously worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And this is a problem uh, as we continue to wave goodbye to God as he's in the rearview mirror and say, hey, we don't want to pray with you anymore. We don't want to, you know, our nation is going to kind of move away and become more secular. We, we got it handled here. And, and so we're worshiping the creature and the creation rather than the creator. Idolatry is ultimately replacing obedience to God with my own passions and pursuits. It's a me-first approach to living rather than serving God. The Apostle Paul regaled the Thessalonian believers for turning to God from idols. That means all non-believers are idolaters because they turn away from idolatry of, of many different types to God. That's what happens when you get saved. You were in idolatry and darkness. Now you're to God and in the light. Being awestruck with creation doesn't mean you start going camping more often in order to marvel at the stellar heavens. God is telling his chosen nation that creation is a guarantee that he promises and plans for them, plans to prosper them and not to harm them, plans to give them a hope and a future. 
The creator didn't create them and then walk away. He's involved, seeing to it all necessary things come to pass. We in the church, we have a guarantee as well. In the New Testament book of Ephesians, we read that having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Regarding this word guarantee, Warren Wiersbe writes, the word means engagement ring. Isn't an engagement ring an assurance, a guarantee that the promises made will be kept? And so the Lord says, I guarantee you that my plan is going to succeed and that I am going to, having begun in you a good work, finish it. And you can look at that ring on your finger, or in our case, the indwelling, permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. And so, you know, when we start to doubt and we start to have these problems and all, uh, we can spiritually look down at our fingers and say, Lord, you've, you've given us a ring and you're not going to take it back. There's not going to be a break in the engagement as far as, the, and we're not going to throw it back. Always dangerous to talk about this. People say, wait a minute, are you saying we can do anything we want as Christians and that, you know, once we're saved, we're going to slide in? If you're a real Christian, if you're born again, that kind of thought horrifies you. If you think, oh, Pastor Gene said I can go out and sin now. If something doesn't rise up in you and say, what are you thinking? What do you mean? Uh, that's a problem. But the truth is, if you're engaged to Jesus Christ, it's a solid engagement. He's preparing for you, and, and, and he's going to bring you home. We need to be awestruck about this. God, the Holy Spirit, permanently indwells us. We are the temple of God on earth. You might think, I'm no Sistine Chapel. I'm no Notre Dame Cathedral. No, I am much greater as the temple of God. I'm the temple of God, so are you if you're a Christian, and the church, when it gathers, is God's temple on earth. Are you awestruck with the Lord at his new creation? Now, we maybe should have started with verse 27. God addressed Jacob and Israel, saying, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? God addressed the descendants of Abraham, the 12 tribes born from Jacob, and they currently face the Assyrian threat. In the future, they'd be facing Babylon. And so the idea here is that they're saying, uh, you know, God doesn't see us anymore. We're hidden from him, and, and he doesn't hear us, right? Now, Assyria, Babylon, that would be bad enough. Then the Roman Empire comes along sometime later and destroys Jerusalem, and all the Jews scatter for since then, right? since 70 AD, and they're, everywhere they go, they're persecuted. Everybody marks them out for genocide. You get into World War II, and Hitler says, we're going to kill all the Jews everywhere. I mean, it's easy to lose heart and think maybe God has abandoned us. And so God is giving this chapter to say, yeah, that's not possible. It is impossible for me to abandon you. Suffering on the scale of Israel's generates doubts, and that leads to lament. But God will never, ever renege on his promises to Israel. He won't. And so anytime a church or a, a, a theology says, oh, we don't really, we're not, God's not really dealing with the Jewish people anymore, not the descendants of Israel. Well, the church has kind of taken the place of Israel. 
we're now the Israel of God. And so Israel, they might even become a nation again someday, but it doesn't mean anything. It does. It means a whole lot. It means God is faithful. And there's no way that the Jews are not going to be saved at the end of history. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Real quick, I see in this a reference to God's special creation of the universe. It talks about the beginning, and that reminds us, of course, of the famous in the beginning, beginning of Genesis. Foundations have to do with the perfect placement of the earth in the greater universe around us. The circle of earth probably refers to the horizon. Uh, we are round earth people here, uh, you know, not flat earth people. Uh, but you're welcome here if you're a flat earther. I don't care what believers, or excuse me, what unbelievers say. There is design in the universe, and guess what? That means there is a designer. Quick word about creation. There are old earth creationists and young earth creationists. God could have created the world over billions of years. Last week, some scientists decided that the earth is twice as old as they thought it was before. It was 13 billion years old. Now it's 26 billion years old. Missed a lot of birthdays, but I guess it's okay. Uh, God could have created the earth in six 24-hour days and nights. Even if you're an old earth person, you have to admit that God being God could do it uh, the other way. We favor the young earth teaching, makes the most biblical sense with the reading of Genesis from a literal, historical, grammatical point of view. If you say, well, wait a minute, what about light from the farthest star and all of these calculations? God created the universe with the appearance of age. If you were an alien and you came upon the earth and you saw Adam and Eve in the garden, would you conclude they had just been created five seconds ago? No, you think, wow, that guy's maybe 30, I would guess, 40 years old. Look at that garden, mature trees. There's a whole universe here, right? And that's the way God created the universe. And so, bam, all right, so now we got the speed of light. We got all these calculations in that. So it's no big deal. And, and it's just easier and makes more sense to believe that. But we can eat a pizza together and you can show me how. There's no horizon. But anyway, verse 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. The heavens are like a wilderness within which God condescends to live in a tent. That reminds us of the wilderness tabernacle and later the temple where he condescended to dwell among men. Verse 23, he brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted, scarcely shall they be sown, scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth, when he will also blow on them and they wither, and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. The Bible presents a series of human empires that interact with Israel, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome are the prominent ones. God raised each of them up to chastise the Jews for their disobedience to him. Each of them would fail uh, ultimately because of pride. They would do what the Lord asked them to do, but then they'd take it too far and they would think they were great and so God brought them down one at a time. You and I are born dying. I think you realize that. We're deteriorating. We're decaying every moment. At best, you've got 100 years to live before you die and you don't really want to live that long. But you could die at any moment. Any one of us could die at any moment. No one looks forward to waiting in a line or at an office. 
It's not uncommon to complain about it, saying something like, my appointment was at 3, now it's 4.15. What are you going to do about that? There's one appointment you are more than happy to wait for. Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed unto men once to die, and after that comes judgment. And so we are a frail people. That's what's one of the things that is being talked about. We need to depend upon the Lord and him for life and eternal life. Verse 25, to whom then will you liken me or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number, calls them by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. God can number and name all of the celestial bodies in the universe. Verse 28, have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary, his understanding is unsearchable. He will not become exasperated and toss away his chosen people. God may not, but humans will. Anti-Semitism is to be expected from the world. We see it today on an unprecedented scale with the war in, uh, against Hamas. Sydney, Australia last week at the Opera House out front, thousands of Australians were sh uh, shouting, chanting, gas the Jews, gas the Jews. And there's things like that going on all over the world. I'm not going to get too into it now, but the church is the greatest place where anti-Semitism has taken place over the centuries. After the apostles died, starting with the anti-Nicene fathers, the Jews were hated. And you can find ridiculous, terrifying quotes about that. All the way up to the great reformer, Martin Luther, who wrote The Jews and Their Lies. The nicest thing he said in that was, you should set on fire their homes, and likewise, they should be broken down. and or their, synagogue, their synagogue should be set on fire, their homes likewise be broken down and destroyed. Uh, and many Christians remain anti-Semitic today. Uh, very, very sad. Verse 29, he gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. Even the youths, I, that's a hard word to say. That's why I, I appreciate Joe Pesci saying youths now. Uh, Even the youths shall fail and be weary, and the young men shall fall. I was doing an Italian accent, it turned into a baby, right? Do you see that? <laughs> Verse 31, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up as wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Spiritual burnout is a popular topic in the church. Uh, the solution being suggested is that you uh, take time off. They call it a sabbatical. One organization that helps pastors take sabbaticals say you do no teaching, no pastoring, no ministering, no visions for the future, no sermon planning. You don't try to accomplish anything big. You just do nothing. You become the Seinfeld of pastors. You know, you become the pastor about nothing. The Jews here are described as weak, having no might, faint, weary. But then in verse 31, there's a dramatic change. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, mounting up with wings as eagles, running and not be weary, walking and not fainting. What made the difference? Was it the sabbatical? No, no. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. The word for wait is better rendered hope. And so if you hope in the Lord in context that he has a plan and a purpose and is coming and all of these things that we're talking about, if you hope in the Lord, his strength will be renewed in you. 
And the idea is that, let's look at the church, as I say all the time and as you say all the time and know, permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit, by definition, I cannot run out of spiritual energy unless I disconnect myself from the source, right? The Spirit is an endless supply of oil, let's say, for, for my fire. And so I can, I can be depressed and discouraged and all that, sure. I can be weary physically and burned out physically and all that. But there, the problem isn't that I need to step back. I need to get even more involved and reconnect with whatever I have disconnected. Because it's an insult to say, God, I, you don't have enough power to help me. Maybe these other people, but not me. And so let's get on board with that. If you're a believer, you are permanently indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, and he's an endless, immediate source. You can fly like an eagle because he is within you. Now, the Apostle Paul claimed that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and all things have become new. Albert Barnes commented, there's a change produced in the renewed heart of man that is equivalent to the act of creation, and that bears a strong resemblance to it. A change, so to speak, as if the man was made over again and had become new. It's mind-blowing, but Paul understood the conversion of a sinner to be as much a work of God as was creation itself. The change is so great as to make it proper to say that he is a new man with new views, new motives, new principles, new objects, and plans of life. He seeks new purposes, and he lives for new ends. We sing that we are filled with wonder, awestruck wonder at the mention of the Lord's name. Because we're in bodies of flesh, we tend to have highs and lows, do we not? We can be in love with the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then the Lord can come to us and say, you've left your first love, repent and do your first works. It's the same thing with being awestruck. When I was first saved, probably when you were first saved, if you were an adult, there was a sense of awe at the greatness and the wonder and the magnificence of God. And then the world comes and starts working on you and, and takes that away a little at a time. This trial and that trial and this you know, discouraging event and this tragedy and all. And, and, and pretty soon you're like the Jews in captivity and maybe you don't say it you know, out loud, but you think, has God forgotten about me? And God would say, Gene, I can name the stars and number them. In fact, let's talk about dust for a little while. And, and you know what? We need to recapture that sense of awe. If it's been a while since you've been awestruck, get it back. God is the awesome God. 